Welcome to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective Podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and in this podcast, we interview leaders and experts in critical care. And for today, we go to Sydney, Australia to discuss balanced crystalloids versus saline in critically ill adults. Hello, my name is Simon Finfer. I am an intensive care specialist and clinical researcher based in Sydney, Australia at the George Institute for Global Health and the University of New South Wales. My particular interest over the last 25 years has been design and conduct of large randomized controlled trials and providing improved data and information for critical care clinicians to treat their patients. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast, Dr. Funfer. We last spoke uh, several years ago, um, and today we're speaking about your article that was published in the NEJM Evidence uh, Journal um, in January 2022. It was entitled Balanced Crystalloids versus Saline in Critically Ill Adults, a Systematic Review with Meta-Analysis. So maybe you could kick us off by answering this question. Why is there so much controversy over which type of intravenous fluid to administer to critically ill adults? Well, this is a controversy that's been going on for, for many, many years. I mean, the first use of fluids for criti- critically ill patients was nearly 200 years ago now, uh, during the cholera pande- epidemic in London, um, where what was actually a balanced salt solution, a mixture of saline and sodium bicarbonate, was given to people and demonstrated to improve outcomes. And the the arguments that have persisted since then have really been there because there hasn't been a large body of robust data um, to support the use of one fluid over another. And as we know in medicine, the, often the strength of the opinions people hold about uh, what they should do for their patients is inversely related to the amount of evidence available. So most most fluids were approved for use by regulators, including the US FDA, based on short-term toxicity studies. Um, so if you gave a fluid and demonstrated it that it increased the blood pressure and it didn't cause problems, and often these were just assessed for you know a, less than a day, six or twelve hours. Um, then fluids were licensed for use. And that meant that we didn't know a lot about their longer-term effects. Um, And it's become apparent over the last, yes, really only the last 15 years or so, that the choice of fluid does affect people's outcomes. Um, I, I led the SAFE study, which compared saline and albumin um, at the turn of the century, (laughs) sounds a terrible long time ago now, Um, because of a meta-analysis that suggested albumin increased mortality in critically ill patients, and we showed doing a lot of 7,000 patient trial, that wasn't the case. And then subsequently also, um, along with others, like the Scandinavians, for instance, and um, Jill Ali and Ains group in France have compared hydroxyethyl starch with uh, crystalloid solutions um, and demonstrated some difference in outcomes there with starch being associated with increased death in patients with sepsis and increased um, kidney injury in critically ill patients in general. So it became apparent that these short-term toxicity studies weren't giving the information we really need, which is what are the, what are the actual patient-centered effects what what do they do in terms of organ function or even risk of death? And because of the those larger studies casting, you know, suggesting we shouldn't use starch in critically ill patients, and that um, albumin didn't carry significant benefits whilst being more expensive in many places, crystalloid solutions have become the Um, first-line fluids for most people and recommended by things like the Surviving Sepsis Campaign for Treating Patients with Sepsis. And then with crystalloid solutions, there are a number of crystalloid solutions that have generally been divided into 
normal saline, which is obviously sodium chloride. It's a, it's just it's 150 millimoles or milliequivalents per liter of each. Um, so it it has um, uh, the effect of if you infuse a lot of it quickly, it causes a hyperchloremic metabolic acidosis. Um, and animal evidence and observational data suggested that that could be harmful. It could result particularly in acute kidney injury and might increase the risk of death. And sort of large observational data suggested that. So as a result, I mean, we, we've done surveys of international practice um, from the George Institute, um, and there's been a clear shift away from saline being the most commonly used fluid to balance, so-called balanced salt solutions. And the strongest data in favor of that came from a, a, a large trial conducted at Vanderbilt in the U.S. in five ICUs in that hospital, um, it was a cluster crossover trial and it was unblinded. So after the first week where a unit was randomized to use one fluid or the other, after the first month, um, because it was unblinded, subsequently everybody knew which fluid they would be giving in advance of patients arriving, which is probably, we, we don't think that would something that would influence people, but it, it obviously unblinded trials and single-center trials have frequently produced results that aren't replicated. So this controversy has has really been around. It's 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 transitioned from a colloid versus crystalloid controversy to a saline versus balanced controversy. And our goal um, was to conduct a um, we conducted an individual randomized controlled trial and at the same time the the Brazilian BrickNet group conducted a, a similar trial where we, we actually coordinated our had some of our definitions and outcomes so we could put it all into a meta-analysis at the end of the day and that's um, it, those data are obviously included in this meta-analysis um, no one trial tends to answer every question um, and while some people are critical of meta-analysis, I think it's a, an extremely useful way of summarizing data for people trying to get the totality of the evidence so people can, rather than trying to weigh up one trial against another when the results are not the same, it, it does give, give people a, a global overview of all, all the evidence available and hopefully provides people with a good summary of the evidence for them. So maybe you could comment on the different types of balanced crystalloids that we have. Um, reading your review article, um, your systematic review, uh, you commented on the fact that there's plasmalite A, uh, plasmalite 148, ringers lactate, ringers acetate. Um, for those of our audience who aren't familiar with these different forms of balanced uh, crystalloids, because uh, they are used in different countries, maybe you could comment on how they compare um, to saline in terms of pH um, and side effects. Yeah. So, I mean, the whole principle of, of, a, of a balanced solution is that you, um, that you have, you reduce the chloride content down to something closer to a physiological content, which means that you have to replace it with some, something else. And the something else, I mean, Obviously, in um, human blood, the something else would, would be predominantly bicarbonate. But the problem with the carbonate is it's really not stable in solution. It's, it's you can't manufacture it um, and store it in the way you can other things. So, so therefore, other things are put in. Probably the, the fluid pe people are most... Uh, have been have used most in the traditionally in the past and even today would be uh, a lactated ringer's solution or um, in some parts of the world known as Hartman's solution um, where it contains lactate in, in replaces the majority of the chloride is replaced with lactate which is then metabolized to bicarbonate within the body then there are other um, things that are uh, used as you mentioned acetate um also malate 
there's usually some mixture of some other um, uh, cations in there. Maybe you know, there's often some calcium. There may be some calcium or some magnesium. So, so there's little little bits of everything that trying to get it closer to human plasma. Um, the, the, so that's the predominant way they they differ. But they also differ in terms of their sodium content. For instance, Hartman's solution has a sodium content of 131, um, whereas saline is 150 and, and, and plasmalite. There are, there are slightly different preparations of plasmalite around the world, but, but um, the one that um, it has been studied most in these trials is um, because of the Brazilian trial and the, the PLUS study that we did um, being two of the largest trials is plasmalite 148, which is sodium 148. And I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about pH um, because the pH of the fluid is often adjusted by the addition of um, either some sodium hydroxide um, or, or you can also adjust it by adding some hydrochloric acid. So the pH of plasmalite 148, for instance, is 7.4. Um, and I think that's an often misunderstood point. Um, there was an editorial written in, in JAMA about the BrickNet trial, which was called BASICS, that the trial was called BASICS, which said that one of the reasons that they might have reported a different result from SMART was the pH of plasmalite was 5.5, or the pH of plasmalite 148 in Brazil is also 7.4. So it's not so much the pH of the fluid that you're giving, but what happens um, uh, once you give that fluid to the body. Um, plasmalite 148, for instance, tends to be slightly alkalizing, alkalinizing um, because of the metabolism of the other components of the fluid. But they do differ. They differ in, for instance, plasmalite 148 has magnesium in it. Uh, Hartman's solution has calcium in it. So, so they do they do vary a bit. And I think another important thing is is tonicity. Um, because they're all a little bit less, they're, they're a little bit hypotonic compared to saline. Um, and that has important implications, particularly for people with traumatic brain injury, where there's um, a reasonable body of evidence that um, that it's harmful to give fluids with lower tonicity or, or to put it another way, it's better to give saline because of its tonicity with traumatic brain injury. And given the differences between saline and the balanced crystalloids, what is the hypothesized uh, mechanism for one group having better outcomes than the other? So the hypothesis around saline possibly being harmful has been very much related to the chloride content. Um, as I said, there, there are animal studies that when you infuse um, sodium chloride in that sort of concentration. And they tend to be studies in which the fluid is infused in larger volumes and faster, and you, you generate quite a significant hyperchloremia and acidosis, um, and you can demonstrate adverse effects on renal blood flow and, and renal outcomes. And that has been the postulated mechanism um, around which um, there is a, an adverse effect, and there's observational data in 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 human, you know, in, in critically ill patients and in surgical patients in particular. That chloride load is, you know, total chloride load that you give to a patient is associated with these worst outcomes. Um, but in terms of uh, demonstrating, I mean, that that's the best data there are, and it's an, it's that's been demonstrated uh, and, and is, is hypothesized. And so um, these effects are observed in all the trials that have compared um, saline with a balanced solution. Always there is an increase in chloride concentration on average in the patients who get saline. It's only of the order, 
in in SMART and in BASICS and in the PLUS study, it's only in the order of about somewhere between two to three milliequivalents or millimoles per litre at the greatest. Um, but obviously, in a large population of patients, that obscures um, some patients where the difference is much higher and some patients where the, the difference is, is less. So that's the hypothesized mechanism. And all the trials report um, the chloride con you know, concentrations in, in the patients recruited um, in support of having or, you know, resulting in a difference, so separation between the two groups, uh, because clearly if that was the hypothesized mechanism and the, the chloride content was the same in, in both groups, A, you'd be worried, did they actually get the fluids they were supposed to get, and B, uh, maybe you didn't cause the difference that was um, expected and hypothesized to cause the harm. So given that background, um, why did you go ahead and perform the systematic review and meta-analysis and what was your uh, clinical question? So the, the major reason for doing doing it was these two new trials. I mean, the, the BrickNet uh, BASICS trial recruited 11,000 patients and the PLUS study that I led um, recruited 5,037. So this was a substantial increase in um, the number of patients and in the number of outcome events in, in terms of, of how many people actually died, which was the primary outcome. Um, and the question that we were trying to answer was in critically ill adults, does the use of balanced solutions compared to saline reduce mortality and or the occurrence of acute kidney injury. And we were including this substantial amount of new data, um, which obviously hadn't been available to previous meta-analyses. And then what were your study methods and how did they differ from previous study methods with systematic reviews? And how did they address any limitations of those reviews? Well, there are some very good systematic reviews. I mean, the, the Cochrane group have, um, amongst others, have addressed this question. And obviously, I, uh, my personal view is that the Cochrane mechanisms are, are very robust. Their protocols are, are peer-reviewed before. If you want to do a Cochrane review, it's peer-reviewed by other experts in the field before you go ahead with it. So I think their their methods are, are quite uh, are very robust. Um, I think the, the obviously the, one of the major advantages we had was this additional data that were available to us. We also did something which is maybe a little bit novel. I mean, we 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 followed the you know all the appropriate uh, guidelines. Uh, we looked, we, for instance, you know, we used um, the, the Cochrane Handbook to guide us. We used, you know, we. Um, retrieved everything was retrieved and assessed in at least duplicate with with a third independent person available for um, for adjudication if there was disagreement between the first two reviewers on a whether a, a paper should be included whether a study fitted the inclusion criteria or because we did a risk of bias assessment which is always has an element a subjective element to it that again was was done by um you know in duplicate with a an adjudication if there was any disagreement so our our methods were you know i pretty standard in that regard and we we hope done to the uh you know high highest standards uh, that one would expect for such a meta analysis the analysis plan was a little bit unusual in that we did both a frequentist um, assessment, um, and we also did a Bayesian assessment um, around mortality, um, and and that that's a little unusual because obviously um, most meta-analyses have just done uh, taken a frequentist approach and said, you know, if the p-value is not less than 0 0.05, or if the you know the confidence one. Um, you're going to say there is no significant difference. 
Um, whereas in a, in a Bayesian approach, you're expressing a probability of something, whether you know it might be the the probability that there is a reduction in mortality, for instance, with with balanced solutions. So that methodologically, that was a little bit different. And I, you know, I am not a biostatistician. I don't claim to be a biostatistician. Um, we had. Um, the, bio, the, the statistics for the meta-analysis um, were done by Gianluca Dutana, who is the head of biostatistics at the George Institute Australia and has a, a particular interest in meta-analysis and also by Fernando Zampieri um, from the BrickNet group. Who, he's from, Sa the, from Sa Sao Paulo. Um, and whilst the the rest of the authors we were in, involved uh, engaged very much in the discussion about how exactly these things were done those are the two real experts who who did this analysis and i think combining um frequentist approach and the bayesian approach is is interesting um and because really that's i think what that's that makes it more useful for clinicians um, to rather than dichotomize around a p-value and say, okay, if the p-value is 0.49, it means there's a difference, and if it's 0.51, it means there isn't a difference. I, I think that that that's something we're moving a, a bit away from in terms of trying to interpret these data. So that was a little bit novel, um, and I think hopefully. Um, clinicians, people treating critically ill patients will find that approach useful. Definitely. So let's jump into your key findings. Uh, what were they and how did you interpret them? Well, our, as I said, our, our primary um, mortality uh, outcome was 90-day mortality or the closest um, available mortality endpoint to that because obviously um, this in a in a trial level meta analysis or, or aggregate data meta analysis like this, we are dealing with only published data, um, and the the relative risk of death with balanced solutions versus saline was 0.96, with a confidence intervals of 0.91 to 1.01. So again, on a frequentist basis, you would say that's not statistically significant, although the point estimate and the spread of the confidence intervals is, is very much towards a, a benefit. The, the, the numbers for acute kidney injury were very similar. Again, the point estimate was 0.96, but with slightly wider confidence intervals because Obviously, there was uh, fewer people who met the definitions of acute kidney injury, and that there the confidence intervals were 0.89 to 1.02. And for treatment with kidney replacement therapy, so any form of dialysis um, in the ICU, um, again, a, a point estimate that favored the balanced solutions of 0.95 but again, slightly wider confidence intervals across one of 0.81 to 1.11. The Bayesian meta-analysis um, said that there was an 89.5% probability of um, balanced salt solutions reducing mortality by some amount. Now, as I say, I'm not a... a an expert biostatistician, but there are a number of different things that go into working out that probability. One is is what you take as your prior probability, um, and we we took um, what are regarded as vague priors. So so really saying, well, we don't have a a strong prior view on what balanced salt solutions do compared to saline. Um, and then you can work out the probability and say, okay, I want to know what the probability is that balanced salt solutions reduce mortality by, let's say, 5% or 10%. And we didn't, we didn't do that. We we said we just because we we did a highly unscientific Twitter poll, and basically most people were saying, look, the cost difference and the complexity of these treatments is not that big. 
in terms of cost difference and in terms of complexity, it's exactly the same whether you're giving balanced or saline in terms of delivery of the treatment. So really any reduction in mortality would sway my decision making. So that's why we went for an assessment of the probability of reducing mortality by any number. Um, we did, we did um, the Gianluca and Fernando did also look at um, the effect of using slightly different, different prior probabilities and the results stayed quite similar. So based on, on that, the, 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 the conclusion um, would be that uh, the use of balanced salt solutions as compared to saline um, would likely be beneficial overall um, but by by a relatively small amount. And, and I should say, obviously, we looked at some subgroups um, within the capability of, um, you know, within our ability to do that within a trial-level meta-analysis. And the two particular ones of interest were patients with sepsis, um, where, again, we had a, a point estimate for the relative risk of death of 0.93 with confidence intervals of 0.86 to 1.01. So again, favoring balanced salt solutions, but from a frequentist point, not quite statistically significant. Again, uh, suggesting more towards using balanced than using saline. And the other group of interest, um, which wasn't reported in all trials, certainly we excluded patients with traumatic brain injury from PLUS because we, we thought that there was sufficient data that we didn't want to give anything other than saline or a, a fluid that was hypotonic compared to saline. Um, and for traumatic brain injury, for the data available to us, the point estimate for balanced versus saline was 1.26, suggesting a 26% a, um, a relative increase in risk of death in patients with traumatic brain injury, with confidence intervals again that just stayed the wrong, just crossed one of 0.98 to 1.60. Um, we, we also had subgroups of patients with trauma and cardiac surgery, which didn't suggest, um, you know, there any anything that even approximated to a significant result there. So, our, our conclusion out of that um, would be that the aggregate data may well hide important subgroup or subpopulation effects and that saline should remain the fluid of choice in traumatic brain injury. And there was evidence of, again, a small, likely a small beneficial effect in the subgroup with sepsis, although we did not, we did not conduct formal Bayesian analyses in the sepsis. We only did that in overall data. And I guess the other thing that I haven't mentioned is that our, our primary outcome was based on trials that we assessed as low risk of bias. So we used the, the Cochrane low risk of, uh, risk of bias assessment tool, and this is all in the paper. And in total, there were, there were 13 randomized controlled trials included that had 35,884 patients. Six of those we adjudged to be low risk of bias, and they included the vast majority of those patients, 34,450. Um, so, so those um, numbers I said they they are from the low risk of bias trials, which were you know well over ninety percent of the total number of patients available. We did report you know the overall effect, including the the trials that were judged to have a high risk of bias, and that didn't change the result at all. Um, so based on on either of those assessments, but we. Our, our primary analysis was low risk of bias trials. We would say that, uh, that overall there was a, a a probability that balanced salt solutions reduce mortality by a small amount um, with the caveat that it's quite likely in traumatic brain injuries they would actually increase the risk of mortality.
So let's jump into the, um, the fact that you analyzed the, those low risk of bias uh, studies. Uh, you said six out of 13. What was intriguing about those six studies is that uh, five of them used plasmalite 148, one used plasmalite A, and two used uh, lactated ringers. So would you say that your findings are most generalizable to those who use plasmalite 148 seen as though both yours and uh, the uh, Brazilian study uh, who contributed 15,000 patients, uh, they accounted for most of the patients. Can we extrapolate these findings to those of lactated ringers um, where it was used less frequently? Um, so the, the actually the, the, the data that push towards, um, I mean, plus was essentially a neutral result with a relative risk of 0.99. Basics also didn't have a, a, a significant result in favor of the balanced solution, but was a little bit more towards the benefit. SMART, the Vanderbilt trial that used um, a mixture of fluids, um, in the ICU it was more plasmalite than, than lactated ringers, but there was lactated ringers used is really the the trial producing most of the data in favor of a benefit for for um, for balanced solutions so it's that's something that's a little bit difficult to put together we did look at um, plasmalite versus others as a as a subgroup or, or plasmalite versus others versus mixed um, because smart was mixed and there wasn't a significant you know, statistically significant um, heterogeneity of the effect between those. And I think it's a very valid question about whether we can treat, you know, balanced solutions as as one thing. Um, because we did, for, for years, as I said at the beginning, the argument was crystalloid versus colloid. Um, and of the colloid solutions that have been investigated in large trials, which would be albumin, and hydroxyethyl starch, that we we clearly don't think of those two fluids as being the same thing, um, because the results of the trials are quite different. Um, we didn't find a huge huge difference between, uh, or you know, any significant difference when we looked at plasmalite versus the treatment effect in, in trials that use plasmalite versus the others. But given the plasmalite 148 trials are closer to unity um it's a little bit hard to say okay we should just we should assume the result applies only to plasmalite um because clearly some of it was was driven by the hartman the hartman's or lactating ringers used in the smart trial but yes most of most of those um i mean over half the data come from trials that use plasmalite and then in terms of the dose of fluid, because that's obviously an issue that sometimes comes up, you know, would I expect to see a difference in mortality or acute kidney injury if I'm giving one liter of fluid in one group versus another um, versus three liters or four liters? I think some of the trials that you mentioned that were in the low risk group gave up to four liters of fluid. Um, I think the Young trial mentioned uh, 10 liters of fluid in each group. Um, in, in the studies with the smaller volumes of fluid, um, some may say, well, would I expect to see a mortality or uh, organ um, injury difference? What would your response to that be? Well, the, yes. I mean, SMART, which reported a significant difference in the, the composite outcome of major adverse kidney events by 30 days or make 30, which is a composite of mortality um, treatment with kidney replacement therapy or dialysis, and um, doubling of serum creatinine from baseline. In that, that SMART, which reported a significant difference in that composite outcome and has really changed practice, the median amount of flu fluid given to the patients in that trial was one liter. So whilst you would say, oh, well, we can't expect a result with that, in fact, the trial that has really driven a, a practice change did exactly that. It gave a median of one liter. In the PLUS trial, the, the median amount was th um, 3.7, 3.9 liters um, of the study fluid. Um, that's, I, I mean, the, 
this is a, a population of patients who are in for for plus for instance these were patients who were uh, had to the treating clinicians had to expect they would stay in the ICU for at least two nights i think more than 75% of them were ventilated more than 40% of them had sepsis so this is actually quite a sick population and we you know that trial was designed to have a baseline mortality rate of around 23%, and in fact, it was 22%. So these are quite sick patients, and these are actually the volumes of fluid that we're giving in our ICUs. I think we've moved away from, you know, giving people, you know, litres and litres and litres of fluid. And obviously, there's research going on in sepsis in particular into whether we should restrict our fluid resuscitation further and use vasopressors earlier. And those... Um, there are a number of ongoing trials which will report findings of interest. But this is the reality of what we do in the ICU. And what we're trying to do is inform people that in this population, in which you're going to give this amount of fluid, because that's actually what happened in practice, and we've surveyed it and we know this is what happens, does it make a difference which fluid you choose? Is it going to affect mortality or or, or acute kidney injury in those patients? Um, so this is, we're answering a real life question, a real life situation. The question always comes up. It was asked of us when we did the SAFE study. It was asked of us when we did starch. People always say, well, what about the people who got lots and lots of fluid? And that's a very difficult question to answer because you can't select subgroup based on what happened to people after randomization because that's a non-randomized comparison and it it's fraught with danger and generally leads to spurious results um but what we did have was you know these subgroups of patients who tend to get a, more patients patients with higher apache scores um, you know, so higher severity of illness at baseline, patients with sepsis who tend to get more fluid. And we didn't see um, a significant uh, treatment effect in those patients. So the, the, the question that we sought to answer about, you know, which is, can be really taken down to, will the choice of fluid, will my choice of fluid that I give to my patient affect their outcome? That's what we've provided evidence for. And you know, with the exception of, of someone who's um, exsanguinating in front of you, we are not very good at predicting the amount of fluid we're going to give to people. And I think certainly in Australia and New Zealand practice where we did PLUS, um, most people would be trying very hard to give fluid as enteral nutrition um, unless it's contraindicated, rather than continuing large volumes of intravenous fluid. So it's a real-life answer in a real-life environment because that's the reality of the amount of fluid we give. I appreciate your answer. And then can you comment on um, the terminology of resuscitation fluids and all fluids? Um, resuscitation fluids would obviously be those patients who have been actively resuscitated. When you say all fluids, are those all fluids that were infused? Does it include um, those patients who are also receiving uh, antibiotics and they get uh, IV piggybacks or uh, fluid carriers with those antibiotics uh, or multivitamins or antiviral medications or vasopressors? When you say all fluids, um, what does that imply? Yeah, I mean, we... Um Obviously, one of the problems with doing a trial-level meta-analysis is all the slightly different methodologies and slightly different definitions, et cetera, which you try and um, harmonize to the best of your ability. Um, but um, we've, again, we've, we've looked at this question because in, I mean, we've done three large fluid trials. So SAFE was 6997 patients, hydrox chest, which was hydroxyethyl starch, and saline was 7,000 patients. So going into PLUS, we had a database of 14,000 patients where we had recorded all fluid that they received within the ICU, and we've done two large international studies looking at what fluids people actually get in ICU, not what they think they're giving, but what, they, what patients actually get. And we know that 
resuscitation fluid, which we we define as as a a bolus a fluid bolus designed to in, you know main, increase or maintain intravascular volume in the face of hypovolemia. Um, they actually are a minority of the fluids that we give. The majority of the fluid we give is so-called maintenance fluid, which is given for hydration um, in patients who you can't um, hydrate via the enteral route, and then drug infusions. Um, and drug infusions, I mean, this is all in the the in the PLUS paper and its supplement that was published on the same day as the um, evidence meta-analysis that we're talking about. The PLUS paper was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And the data's all in there and we've described. So as as open-label saline and plasmalite, and those are large, you know, largely for drug infusions. One of the problems with plasmalite is that it hadn't been tested for compatibility with a lot of drugs that are used. I mean, it had only been com tested for compatibility um, for over a four-hour period. So if you were going to run an infusion of norepinephrine, for instance, um, you, we know people do in clinical practice frequently put that in plasmalite, but it hasn't actually been tested for, for stability over more than four hours, which meant that within the context of a clinical trial, we had to say you can't do that. So most of the fluid is given as drug infusions. It's common practice in Australia, certainly, to give intravenous acetaminophen or paracetamol to surgical patients in the ICU as part of their analgesic regimen. And that generally, you know, a gram of acetaminophen is in uh, a 100 mil or 100 cc bag. So if you do that six hourly, that's four, 400 mils an hour, 400 mils a day of that fluid. So the majority of fluid that's given after the first day or two in ICU is is drug infusions or other fluids. And we, we, we counted all of that in plus and um, obviously different trials have done different things. SMART reported their the fluids used in their patients uh, very well and very carefully. Um, so the difference between... And and because we knew um, that the majority of fluid was not being given as resuscitation fluid, that's why, for instance, in PLUS, we decided to say resuscitation fluid and all other compatible crystalloid therapy because we want, wanted to patients to get one fluid or the other give us the best chance of answering the question of whether it made a difference. I bring up that question because that does have implications for uh, folks who are actually practicing um, in, in uh, community hospitals or facilities that aren't, they don't have those technical capabilities to change all their fluids to balanced solutions. For example, um, we had a patient who received three and a half liters of fluid and the fluid strategy of the attending was to give lactated ringers, and the patient got one and a half liters of lingers of um, lactated ringers. But if one went carefully through the infused fluids, one realized that that patient actually also received 1.6 liters of saline through piggyback. You know, 500 cc's via remdesivir, 100 cc's uh, multivitamins, 500 cc's docin, 500 cc's norepinephrine, and that has big implications because a physician might be thinking, you know what, I am uh, giving this patient uh, balanced solutions, but at the end of the day, they're actually given a 50-50 split of balanced solutions and saline. Um, does that mean that we need to be speaking to our pharmacists? Do we need to be um, asking questions about why are they using saline? Is it a cost issue? Is it a, combat a compatibility issue? How would you suggest physicians address this issue? Well, I think, I mean, that's very much what happened in 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 the PLUS trial where we didn't see a difference in out, any, any significant difference in outcomes. So there are compatibility issues um, with, with, you will find that um, a lot of the fluids, the fluids that people are using 
um, have not actually been um, tested for compatibility with drugs. Um, and usually it's the drug manufacturer who's going to, to test compatibility, and they may do it in saline, for instance. Um, and I think the um, uh, certainly the BrickNet, the basic study in our study would suggest that, that that is not something that one should be overly concerned with. Um, I think it's much more dangerous to give someone uh, a drug, you know, that precipitates out in a fluid. Um, we had we had only two reports of that. For instance, in, if I talk about plus rather than the systematic review, because we can't look at that sort of stuff in, in you know detail in a systematic review. But we had to, we only we only had two reports of drugs. Um, being you know, precipitating or looking incompatible, but that's a, that's a significant issue, um, and a lot of drugs are pre pre prepared um, for intravenous infusion, um, and certainly from a legal perspective, one you know is taking a great risk if you mix a drug with a fluid which is you know not known to be compatible. So that may drive, um, and I think. When you look at, I mean, some of the stuff that is written about saline um, and people rever referring to it as abnormal saline and suggesting that giving any to any patient is um, potentially, you know, you're, you're um, practicing in a dangerous or negligent fashion. I think these data from these large trials and even from the meta-analysis um, would suggest that yes, there may be a difference, but it's small. Um, and and um, if there is another reason, like drug compatibility, to choose to use saline, that that's not going to expose your patient to an enormous risk. I think the other thing that is likely, although I don't have data to support this, is 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 not only the total volume of fluid you give, but the time over which you give it, because I think we could all agree that if we were to infuse 50 mils of saline into someone over a prolonged period of time, uh, it's unlikely to do them harm. But if we give the same volume of fluid very, very quickly and generate the, um, you know, big hypochloremic et cetera, it might be different. Um, but yes, I think... Um, again, and we're we're going to look at these issues. Um, this is in the future, but the the same group that have published the meta-analysis in um, NEJM evidence, we are um, conducting a patient-level meta-analysis, and we're in the process of gathering all the data from all the major trials um, and from who so will give them their data, um, and that that. Within an individual patient data meta-analysis, one has a much greater ability to answer some of these questions around subgroups in particular um, and looking at whether there are um, there any baseline characteristics that mean that the risk um, you know, is higher or lower of using one fluid versus another. Because I said there... The, these summary results include patients with sepsis, include patients with traumatic brain injury, and there's quite a strong um, signal there that we should be given we should be giving saline in preference to balanced solution in patients with traumatic brain injury. I know the the an editorial that accompanied the basics publication suggested that further trials in traumatic brain injury were needed. But I think actually it'd be difficult to do that because the the body of data already suggests it's harmful. So how you would get that past an IRB and how you could honestly ask people um to recruit patients to that um I think will be would be difficult. But there's a very open question about non traumatic acute brain injury. I mean certainly in our ICUs we're seeing more people who've had um We've always had a lot of patients who've had subarachnoid hemorrhage. We're seeing more patients who are having ischemic stroke, who are having thrombolysis or clot retrieval, um, who are coming to our ICUs after their procedures. And we don't know if perhaps 
um, balance salt solutions might cause a problem there as they appear to in traumatic brain injury. So there's still some work to be done, but if if you're giving, as you've suggested, I think, the other fluids that patient receives, drug infusions in particular, um, over time, anyone who's in the ICU for any period of time will be significantly more than fluid given for cardiovascular resuscitation. So if you're a you know, strong believer in, in balanced salt solutions, yes, um, you know, and our data would suggest there is a small benefit there. Um, you do need to think about how are these fluids being given. I mean, when you, for instance, intravenous um, paracetamol or acetaminophen comes from a manufacturer, um, and it would be very difficult for any individual hospital to influence that uh, because it's all pre-made, um, pre-manufactured. That's really insightful comments, uh, Dr. Finfer. Um, I want to dive back into the... You mentioned this trend that we've had over the last 20 years, so colloids versus crystalloids, saline versus balanced uh, uh, solutions. It would seem as though the next logical step would be to determine which is the uh, best balanced uh, crystalloid. Um, do you, uh, is there any plans to do that? Um, and then uh, tagging onto that, um, what is the role of bicarb infusions? Um, as you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, um, we naturally have bicarb in our blood and that helps to buffer solutions. And then there's obviously the limitation of having ready-made bicarb infusions because um, uh, they're not stable. Would it be possible to compare bicarb infusions uh, with balanced uh, crystalloid infusions? Is that a role in the future? So that's an interesting question because uh, I think more recently we have some data suggesting that bicarbonate, giving bicarbonate solutions for metabolic acidosis, for the treatment of metabolic acidosis, may be beneficial, but I think that question isn't fully answered. Um, trying to sort out which were the most, uh, the best balanced salt solution, um, we don't have plans to do that right now. We've had some thoughts and discussions about it. It's likely to need um, a very big trial. Um, our, our first goal is to do our patient-level meta-analysis where we will look again at, um, because we will have information on fluids received by each individual patient. So we will be able to, for instance, um, take out everyone who got lactated ringers. Uh, you know, the treatment of it will still be a comparing lactated ringers versus saline. Is the treatment effect different from uh, plasma light versus saline, etc. So we can do that to a degree. Um, it's an interesting, you know, idea really. If we think, for instance, you know, that it's the the problem is the chloride that we could make our own, if you like, balanced salt solution by infusing a lesser volume of saline with a higher with a with a small volume of sodium bicarbonate at the same time. Um therefore, you know, simple math to work out uh what you're giving as as bicarbonate and, and what you're giving as um as saline. It's a, a little bit it's it's complex and there aren't there aren't data that that allow us to say yes that's a good idea, it's a bad idea. Theoretically, it doesn't sound like a bad idea, but again, um, lots of things that have sounded theoretically good in the past haven't proven to be good in the, the longer run when subjected to a, a large trial. I mean, I think that there are the issues you have with this. So if you're going to do a blinded trial like BASICS or PLUS or SAFE or whatever, you have to work with a fluid manufacturer. Um, to 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 blind the trial and Baxter did you know were great partners for both Plus and and Basics so you you have to work with a manufacturer to produce those blinded blinded fluids I mean uh, we blinded the safe study it was very very complicated um, because albumin and, and saline don't look the same um, so it's not these are not easy trials. 
um, to do. I mean, it may may look easy. You can do, you know, if you, a cluster randomized trial, preferably blinded, would probably be the way to go if you wanted to compare to to balanced salt solutions, because you would really need a very large population of patients, um, and that could possibly be done within a uh, a cluster design, either a straight cluster trial or a cluster crossover. Um, really ought to be blinded because once you don't have, you know, people have strong opinions on fluid, and when they know that someone's getting a fluid they don't like, then it possibly changes their behaviour. Um, or if they're getting a fluid they love, it may change their behaviour in terms of volumes they give or what else they give. So binding is 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 quite important, and that would be you know a a, reason, a reasonable criticism of smart, I guess. And then I wanted to get to this question of um, your final assessment. As you said, you'll use the frequentist assessment um, as well as a Bayesian assessment. And um, the frequentist assessment gave a non-significant p-value. And for some, you know, it's clean data, it's easy to interpret, it's yes-no, but the problem is that it's dichotomized and that isn't real life. Whereas with the Bayesian uh, assessment, um, it's a question of probability, and that's kind of how we intuitively think in terms of clinical practice. But it does raise the question of, you know, what is a significant result? Um, in your study, you said, you know, 89% probability that um, the balanced solutions would be beneficial. Where's the cutoff? Um, some may look at your study and say, what does the future hold for clinical trials um, in critical care? Um, are we going to be doing frequentist assessments and Bayesian assessments for both? Where do we draw the line to say that the result is significant or not? Um, is a value of 80%, 85%, 90% useful? Uh, what advice would you give them? Well, I think that's, that's a re it's a difficult question to answer. I mean, I, I think the, the, as I said, if we the the sort of frequentist view that point four p value point four nine yes this is a better treatment i must use it p value point five one there's no difference it's it's a bit it's counterintuitive and it's really based around the thinking of you know this is you know a clinical trial is one experiment and we know that clinical trials um can you know especially you know, the first trial may come out with a result that looks good. There may be publication bias. It gets a lot of, you know, easily published because it's got a significant result. It doesn't, you know, you might say that that kind of happened with the vitamin C question where, you know, a relatively um, weak methodology of a before and after study of a very small number of patients, you know, changed practice and drove a whole research agenda and all the, the, the trials that have, you know, follow-up trials being prospective randomized controlled trials haven't shown that the C, um, thiamine, hydrocortisone treatment is beneficial in people with sepsis. So the point about doing, I think when you do one trial, um, you've got to be have some skepticism and, and that's where the whole idea of, you know, the p-value of 0.05 came along that you know you you can be reasonably confident the probability of this result being being spurious is only one in 20 um whereas when you've got a number of trials and a and a body of evidence um such as presented in the meta analysis you're saying well look we we're, we're talking about a you know six six low risk of bias so well designed trials that have recruited almost 35,000 patients the treatment effect is clearly not dramatic it's it's clearly not changing mortality by you know 10% i mean it's a relative risk reduction in the point estimate of 4% is a 4% reduction so if you've got a population of patients as in plus with like a 20% risk of mortality and then you applied you know, so that population in ICU, and then you re the relative risk reduction is going to be four percent of that. Then, you know, your your number needed to treat becomes relatively high, and that's where you think about okay, 
what is the cost difference? What is the complexity difference here? What are the potential side effects of this? If you are dealing with a new pharmaceutical that is not being given to very many people, which doesn't have a strong track record of um, you know, safety, then you might well say, well, that's not enough for me. Um, I think you know, I want more data before I decide to, to change my practice. If you did something, for instance, like proning, prone ventilation, which is complex, carries risks, needs lots of staff, need you know has risks of you know losing lines, et cetera, et cetera. You want reasonably strong data before you say, okay, I'm going to train everyone in my ICU to be able to all my nursing staff. Uh, and all my ancillary staff to be able to safely turn people prone and turn them back again, and my nursing staff to be comfortable and competent at managing a patient who is prone or on ECMO and prone, etc., then I think you need stronger information. I don't think there is a... These are obviously my own personal opinions. I don't think there is a single cutoff for every clinical question we're dealing with. As I said, we did our extremely unscientific Twitter poll as regards crystalloid fluids, and people said, "Look, if there's if there's really any mortality difference, and the cost is and the cost difference in my environment is not that great, um, I'm going to go with whichever one seems to have a mortality difference." I don't think you can you can say that there is a single cutoff, um, but I hope by presenting both. The frequentist, I mean, if if you want to be strictly frequentist and say, okay, the the 95% confident of all, the upper limit is 1.01. Okay, I don't think, it will, you know, that to me is a non-significant difference. I'm going to ignore that and do whatever I want. Um, that's fine. I mean, that's, that's, that's changing clinicians' behavior, which has always been a, the goal of our research, has been either to... It's not actually to publish papers, although one has to do that. But it's about changing behaviour so that patients get treated better. Um, but changing behave people's behaviour is difficult. Um, and when people have strong pre-existing biases, um, they're likely, quite likely to take out of um, something like this meta-analysis there's a, there's a good chance someone will say, well, that reinforces my bias. If if someone was a very strong advocate of balanced solutions, they're going to say, well, I always knew that. Well, I knew the probability favoured giving a balanced solution. That's what I'll keep doing. That, that's reality. And, and um, there will always be um, this practice variation that goes on. And we hope by generating more data and a clearer analysis of existing data, um, we're going to help people make um, what they consider to be the best decision in the in the um, to the benefit of their patients. Yeah, no, it's definitely very clear data and very uh, well worked uh, data. Um, very scientifically sound. Um, in terms of the key limitations of the, your systematic review, what do you want um, uh, the audience to be aware of uh, when they interpret uh, these findings? Well, we think we did it. You know, obviously, I suspect most people would say this when they've when they've done some research. But we we believe we did it to a high standard. We used um, the appropriate guidelines. We um, had a a large group of people from you know was prominently from the U.S., Australia, New Zealand, Brazil people who've done these trials. And um, I would say that we. None of us were allowed to do a risk of bias assessment or anything else on our own trials. That was all done independently, obviously. Um, the limitations are always those of the trials that you're including. Um, the fact that you have different endpoints at different times. I mean, SMART didn't follow people beyond hospital discharge. So although we were doing, um, you know, we were doing 90-day mortality um, or the nearest time point to it, which could have been before or after, so um so you've always got those differences um definitions of subgroups for instance and definitions of the outcome like acute kidney injury um i mean mortality is pretty standard i think we can all agree whether someone's alive or dead in general um 
acute kidney injury was defined differently within the trials, um, so we have to uh, accept accept whatever whatever definition the trial used. Um, sepsis at baseline could be defined differently depending on time, depending on whether you were before or after sepsis three, for instance. Um, and so these th there are those things. A number of those things we can make better with our with our individual patient data meta-analysis, um, and particularly you're restricted in terms of subgroups to what is published. Whereas when we have everyone's baseline data, we'll be able to look at different. Yeah, and we're definitely well worked out. Yeah, we're definitely looking forward to your patient-level uh, meta-analysis uh, to answer these unanswered questions. Dr. Finfer, you've been really uh, gracious with your time, and we appreciate you sharing your insights with our audience. Um, we do want to give you the opportunity to leave us with any concluding remarks um, or any comments that you may have thought of in the preparation for this podcast that you haven't had uh, the opportunity to share with us yet. Um, your final remarks. Well, thank you for inviting me and giving me the opportunity to talk about this research, which is obviously the product of a, a huge uh, group of people. Each of these trials involves thousands of people, both thousands of patients and families who've graciously consented to, to be part of a trial, um, and also thousands of people who worked on them. Um, I think my, my I don't have any devastating new concluding comments. I, I I hope that both the uh, individual trials that we've conducted and this meta-analysis um, provide people with a good summary of the, the current data, the, that the frequentist and Bayesian analyses, which we believe are complementary and agree with each other, both of which suggesting that overall there is a benefit from the use of balanced solutions with the caveat that there are subgroups, particularly traumatic brain injury, where saline should remain the fluid of choice. I hope those people will see those um, and, and different analytic techniques as being complementary and in agreement with each other, and that these this analysis and these data will help people to feel um, confident and comfortable with how they're treating their patients, and it will improve patients' outcomes. Thank you very much, and congratulations to you and your team for really outstanding systematic review and meta-analysis. Thank you again. A big thank you to Dr. Finfer, and a big thank you to all of you for listening to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective podcast. I'm Dominic Pepper for the American Thoracic Society.